Welcome to Bodies in the Post, where I speak to art makers, product creators, scientists and revolution makers who make us rethink what it is to be human in these post-human times. Here, we get to know the humans behind the creations and their inner worlds that form the basis of what drives them. I'm your host, Lydia Kay, a researcher in this field. My guest this week is Jack Zisfane, a fashion designer who graduated from Regents University in 2023, which is one of the universities I lecture at in fashion theory. So Jack was actually one of my students one of the star students, I should say. Originally from Los Angeles, he won a scholarship to do a term at Regents as a study abroad student, and then officially transferred over to do his final year and complete his bachelor's degree in fashion design. He said his dream was to come to London, as he had a keen interest in the city's fashion, the subcultures, and also artists Parmaham and Dak Derma, both of whom I also interview for this podcast. Parmaham was for episode two, and Dak's episode is upcoming. So Jack was obviously what we call a practice-based student. So that's anyone studying something like design or fine art. And my role with those students is to teach them the theory side of things and help them with their research, which feeds into the conceptual thinking behind their designs and gives them the vocabulary to be able to speak about their creative ideas in detail. So the student's final collection has to have this depth of research behind it and a dissertation to support it. And that's where I come in. Through talking to Jack about his interests and ideas in his designs, I introduced him to post-human theory, trans-species theory, and transgender studies, which he loved. Being a trans man, he connected with the non-binary arguments of the theories and the crossover with non-human bodies. His final designs were ultimately inspired by the anatomy of insects and forms that disrupt binaries between human and non-human, as well as male and female. His collection was titled Anthropomorphic Pest, and it featured these monstrous silhouettes where praying mantis heads were reimagined into bodysuits, or the thorax of a wasp dictated the structure of skirts, and he incorporated geometric shapes and shiny leathers to create cocoon-like armoured forms. He connected with insects due to their ability to transform and metamorphosize, relating that to the experience of transitioning as the body changes, but also because trans people are societally made to feel like pests in their own skin. Positioned as non-human through their rejection of perceived normative bodily binaries, Jack also incorporated top surgery scars into his fashion designs as a way of acknowledging the transmasculine experience and trans embodiment more broadly. For those who don't know, top surgery scars are the result of the removal of breasts. The final degree fashion show was a huge success and Jack's icons Parmaham and Dak Derma were sat in the front row. A dream come true for Jack. He won an award for his use of new materials in his designs, and he was marked as one to watch by one of the fashion journalists there. In this episode, we talk about the collection and also Jack's own experience of transitioning. We talk about him growing up in a Mormon community with a Mormon mum and a Jewish dad, then later moving to LA where he felt more free to explore his identity and artistic expression. He also talks about his hopes and plans for the future as an up and coming fashion designer. In this episode, we mentioned CSM a few times, and I should explain here for my listeners who aren't based in London or don't necessarily know about this college, that CSM stands for Central St. Martins, which is a world-renowned arts and design college. It's one of the colleges attached to the University of the Arts, London, and is generally considered one of the top places to study fashion design in the world. 
Jack talks about his ambitions to potentially study a postgraduate degree there. I loved this conversation with Jack. Obviously, I had previously got to know him in a professional sense through being his lecturer, but over the previous year, we'd had many conversations about his art, our mutual interest in post-human theory, and the artists that I see as part of this post-human art movement. Jack is talented, incredibly hardworking, and is definitely one to watch. I hope you enjoy listening. Welcome to Bodies in the Post. Thank you Thank for you. coming to chat with me. Thank you for having me. Very excited. Well, obviously, for the sake of transparency, you've been a student of mine, which you're now no longer because you've graduated. Oh, how bizarre. Yes. And actually, one of the reasons I waited to interview you was because someone advised me that you shouldn't be my student at the time of interviewing you. Oh, interesting. Really? Yeah, because they were saying it's kind of you can't be seen to have a closer relationship with one of your students than the others. Oh, I see. Like yeah. It has to be quite fair and objective amongst the group. So that's one of the reasons I kind of kept delaying it a little bit. We did your dissertation together. I helped you write your dissertation, which was all about posthuman theory and transspecies theory you got really interested in. Yes, yeah. What was it that kind of drew you to that theory? Uh, so, I mean, when we first met, we kind of had a little introduction about what we wanted to write our dissertation about. And I kind of came up to you and was like, I don't know anything about fashion theory. Um, I love gender. I'm trans. It sort of uh, is a major part of my design process. It's a major part of my creative process. How can I incorporate these sort of theories of gender within my work in an academic format? And you kind of gave me uh, an introduction to posthumanism and a couple authors and said, just go read a little bit about it, see if you like it. And I fell completely in love with it. Amazing. I'm so glad I had that effect on you. Yeah. That's, to be honest, that's the effect you want to have on every student. Yeah. And it basically never happens. Oh, really? Well, <laughs> or, you, were the, you were the first teacher who ever knew a lot of the artists that I was looking at as muses, like uh, Parma and Doc and stuff. No one had ever heard of them without me informing them. So I was already unbelievably excited for dissertation. Yeah. Friends of the podcast as well, Palmer yes. Ham and Duck, who also came to your final collection degree show, which yes. was throughout the whole year, the fashion design students are building up to this final collection show, which is a big runway show, catwalk show that's held at Regents University in the quad outdoors. And as well as family and friends coming, it's got fashion media, fashion press, people who come and do reviews and publish them. It's a big thing to build up to. And you have, is it seven looks? Six, yeah. Six looks yeah. that you're designing, and there has to be this context to them. So your dissertation and your final collection feed into one another. Yeah, it's a it's a major part of the process just to basically include theory and concept with your design work, not just really pretty or well-made clothing. Yeah. And your final collection, we had Parmaham and Dak there in, yes. the, in the audience, in the VIP area, nonetheless. Very exciting. What, how did that feel for you, having your final show? It didn't even feel like completely real. It was so exciting. I've looked up to both of them for many years. I've followed their artwork and their performance for since I was a young teenager. And I, I had the opportunity to interview Parmaham for my dissertation, which at that point didn't feel real, that I had sort of this more personal relationship with the both of them. And for them to see my work and congratulate me and want to work with me in the future was so, just so exciting. I, I still can't fully believe it happened and that it's real and that I DM Doc sometimes and uh, I plan to make them some garments in the future too. Amazing. Well, they are really big fans of yours, is what I gathered from when I spoke 
spoke to them at the show. Yeah. They were just like, wow, Jack's collection is amazing. And they loved what you're what you're doing and how you're designing and like the ethos behind your designs. Well, they've been such a, a big inspiration to me because um, they also came from the United States. And uh, I haven't really encountered a lot of Americans. So to see someone who I've looked up to for so long come from where I came from and make it here and is who they are and embodies this person I wish to be. It was just so exciting to have their attention and praise. You mean Dak? Yeah, in yeah. particularly, yeah. Parma as well, but um, but Dak being American because was because they're was, American. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and the collection itself. Tell us. I mean, we already know that your dissertation you looked at posthuman theory and transspecies theory. Tell us a bit more about what the collection looked like. Yeah, so my graduate collection, uh, I really wanted to play on these theories, but to make them visual, I got a little bit stumped in the beginning. They used to be quite conceptual in pre-collection. And then by the time I reached the collection term, I went very insect. I kind of wanted to use insects as a visual reference to kind of combine with these gender theories, especially in the context of feeling othered, this idea of transformation, of metamorphosis. Visually, I'd used a lot of uh, reference to praying mantis was kind of my main insect, and also scorpions for this sort of like armored shelled appearance. Uh, I referenced hornets and their patterns on their thoraxes a lot to create sort of these textures and skirts. My main emphasis sort of from a visual perspective was working with the concept of skin. What is leather? Why do humans have skin but not hides? Why do animals have hides and not skins? And sort of playing on that more, uh, I guess, argument of definition. Um, so I tried to create kind of a faux human skin hide out of uh, latex. Uh, I ended up winning an award for that, actually. Quite proud of Ooh, it. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, so yeah, what I tried to- What was the award to, for, sorry? Uh, my uh, manufacturing of a, of a new textile for a collection. So it was my um, materiality award. That's what materiality it was called. Materiality award. That's so yeah. cool. And sorry, I interrupted you then. You were going to say something else. Yeah, it was pretty much that. Um, no, I, I made the my human skin, and it was just a, a main visual narrative on sort of, I guess, that post-human concept of why are animals less than humans or where are we in the same context while also incorporating these theories of gender in as well. Oh, and a major concept I also forgot is as a trans man, I have I have top surgery scars, and they're really important visual reminders of who I am in both a good way. 95% in a good way, sometimes not as positive. But as someone who focuses a lot on fashion and a lot in garments, seams are very important. And like I notice a lot of like lines and forms and kind of other objects. So I like to joke that my scars are my favorite seams. So I used the same sort of lines uh, in these garments, sort of mimicking both the lines of different bugs and insects and patterns, but also the lines of trans bodies. So they're, it's all intermorphed together throughout mm, the collection. I love that, intermorphed together. That's amazing. So... The more you look through it, the more things will pop up. I loved the kind of bodysuits that were geometrically stitched together to create almost like a cocoon shape. Yeah. And those, like you say, the lines that featured a lot, these kind of geometrical sort of line shapes that were throughout the collection. And I loved the term that you used, which was like bulging denim. Yeah. And all of these different kind of shiny textures and matte textures. And there were some designs that had the sort of scars on them that were yeah. that would be positioned where they would be on the body. Yeah. Well, also being um, not hidden, but in, it just gets weaved together with 
different insects. So the one in particular, I did this bodysuit that the the main chest component looked like the head of a praying mantis, but where the eyes were on the chest is exactly where top surgery scars would be. I mean, also connected up higher. But um, no, I loved incorporating different things. And most people wouldn't necessarily know that, but I know that that's there, and it's in my research, and it's in my references, and I love including those kind of uh, little details within mm, and my garments. I guess as well, it's about this kind of acknowledging and celebrating trans embodiment, which is a very specific kind of embodiment, which, you know, is a minority group experience. Trans embodiment is something that often isn't like talked about in many ways and isn't kind of acknowledged or made known. Yeah. So I feel like that was such an important thing to bring forward. You mentioned that it's 95% good and yeah. 5% not good. Can I ask you about that? Your feelings towards your scars, that is. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's sort of just the trans experience. I am unbelievably proud of being trans. I'm so proud of how far I've come and who I've become and what I've managed to accomplish. Me as a young teenager would have never, ever imagined I've done anything I've done just a couple years in the future. But then there are reminders in this world that I am trans um, in not such a positive way, especially socially. I mean, I've gotten a lot of I mean, like in terms of most recently, like dating, there's a lot of difficulties in dating as a trans person, sort of being perceived as different or other, especially sometimes even within the queer community. I feel it kind of more generally, at least as a student, I was the only trans person. I was largely the only queer person. That's very othering, which is also what my graduate collection was about. It's a common feeling I have. You feel other, so you feel different to your peers and your the people around you. Yeah. And like sometimes it's not even negatively. Like I loved my peers. I love my teachers. I loved my experience. Regents, they're just, it was just me. So I felt quite alone sometimes in, in a lot of my experiences. And I do frequently, especially moving to a different country, kind of learning how to maneuver in new places and, and new environments. So there's there's a certain level of, of like loneliness that I feel frequently, but it's not a bad thing. And I would never say that I, I would wish to not be trans, but there's a lot of sometimes like sad elements, especially right now in politics, at least in the US. There's constant and targeting. The as well. And the UK, yeah. yeah. Just constant targeting mm. of my community and my people and for the largely no reason. I mean there's mm. there is reasons as to why it's happening, but nothing in, in sound. It's really reasoning. tragic how sorry, nothing in sound reasoning. Yeah, just yeah. It's tragic how it's got so unbelievably divisive, this yeah. idea that it's it's right or wrong, there's one way or the other, and it's kind of taking all the nuance and grey area out of life and that, like, who's deciding what's right and wrong anyway? Who's deciding what's, I'm putting in, in quotation marks, natural, yeah. like the natural body? I read an article by someone called Nikki Sullivan, and she she's writing about trans, she's, like, pro, she's queer theorist, feminist theorist, yeah. but she writes about it in a way that's quite uh, binary, which you can critique it through that, but she basically says historically within academia and within like society people who are within like sociology criminology psychology they see any kind of altering of the body that moves it away from the norm the dominant norm like we yeah. said about like the majority whatever the majority decide decide is normal and natural again in quotations then any body modification or like desires that moves you away from that norm is kind of seen as a symptom of mental health problems or trauma. Yeah. Anything, it's like, oh, this person is unstable. Whereas within academia and society as well, within like the queer community, within queer theory, a lot of feminist theory, not all feminist theory, moving away from the norm 
is actually celebrated. And it's like, yeah, you move away from that fucking norm. It's like yeah. it's destroying us anyway. That norm is a patriarchal, suppressive idea of what the natural body is. And it's not real. And actually, if you want to cover your body in tattoos and you want to maybe move away from typically feminine look, looking, I mean, like a cis woman, for example. Yeah. Like, for example, if a cis woman was covered in tattoos from top to bottom, people might be like, oh, gosh, that's a sign of mental illness. Whereas she's just basically not adhering to what society thinks of as feminine and what yeah. a female should look like. And I find that really interesting, this idea that you're either moving away from the norm or towards the norm, because there's plenty of surgery and body modification that people have all the time yeah. all over the world but because it's moving them towards a norm or like an ideal then it's accepted it's totally accepted they're not seen as mentally unstable like if they take it too far to the point where they look like clearly like they've had plastic surgery then it's too then far. they're going backwards again yeah. yeah whether or not it's intentional exactly but i find it so new so interesting that it's like you're either moving towards this norm or away from this norm and who who the hell has decided what this norm is like yeah this idea of nature what is natural like nature is actually really queer like and nature never, doesn't it's not a binary it. it's not one thing or another thing or a couple things it's always different it multiple. it's always changing it's always changing a lot of species like change their sex changes throughout their life a lot of them reproduce in like non-normative ways nature is often really queer but we're told to look at nature to see like what bodies are natural and what bodies are unnatural yeah what are we conforming to and who's decided what it is? And that moving away from the norm is something obviously that trans people do if they engage in body modification. Yeah. They're moving away from what nature has intended for their body. And that's what many people would argue. Because it's also a, sort of this, um, I mean, it's a dual concept. I mean, like I got top surgery for myself to feel comfortable to have a more, we'll go with traditional like cis male chest. I went towards the norm of that binary to look more male. But in a cis perspective, I was going the other direction. But in reality, if I was to present the way I do and I had kept my, we'll go with chested birth, I will call it, I would be going against that norm anyway now that I present in a different form, more visually on a more day-to-day -day basis, which is really interesting that you can kind of, there's no winning. <laughs> yeah. And for you, that is your natural. Yeah. Your nature, you feel like a trans man. And for you to have kept the body you were born with in that way would have felt incredibly unnatural for you and unlivable, I assume. Yeah, no, for me, definitely. I mean, some everyone has different experiences, but it was absolutely critical that I had top surgery. And I mean, I was quite, I'm the youngest person that I know who's had it. I was 14 when I had top surgery. Wow. So it was very critical to me and my, I guess, medical sort of team at the time agreed with me because it was detrimental to my mental health to be living the way I was. And did you have supportive family at that time? Because 14 did, is yeah. very young. Yeah. There was a lot going on at 14. There was other just being 14 issues and my parents were going through divorce. So there was just a lot of situations going on at the same time. Um, but ultimately, yes, I lived with my aunt, who was my primary care parent, I guess, is that she was basically a parent for me. Um, and then also with my dad and together they helped me sort of through those early stages of transition just from a needing uh, like a legal adult sort of perspective as well as emotionally but I could not have transitioned as young as I did without them and without their support. support. Yeah. Did they at any point try to dissuade you or were they like okay this makes sense and Actually, funny enough, mostly medical professionals tried to tell me to wait until I was 18 or I was too young to know or um, what I was feeling was inaccurate or I just was having 
insecure. I was insecure with my body. I was just an insecure girl, and I was really just a tomboy, or maybe I was just queer. And my dad had a little bit of issues with it originally. He wasn't, I guess, well-versed in the topic. He wasn't educated. In it. I mean, nor was my entire family. I sort of brought it to the family, and everyone kind of had to get used to it had and, to and learn. learn about it. And so did I. I didn't know what I was doing. But yeah, I had a little bit of pushback from my dad, but ultimately he came around, and he's completely supportive now. Mm. And obviously for you, it was completely the right thing, but you can see why medical professionals have to kind of push back sometimes and say, you know, this could, you know, some people 100% are trans and they need those procedures like, yeah. without doubt. And then I think sometimes potentially with other people, they want to express themselves in a way that isn't seen as normal. Yeah. And then they assume, okay, I must be in the wrong body. Yeah. When actually maybe they're expressing themselves in a non-feminine or non-masculine way. And it's not necessarily an issue of modification. It's just an identity yeah. of Yeah, or maybe personhood. society imposes this idea of like medical adjustments being... Yeah. Your body should be adjusted if you feel that way. Maybe some people feel pressured. Oh, definitely. So I, think I know it's... plenty of, of trans men in particular. I spent a lot of time with trans men who thought they had to get bottom surgery, they had to get top surgery, or even start hormones. Some people don't even... It's just completely a, a social perspective of just a switch of a pronoun, and people are, are comfortable. Yeah. So everyone's different. Exactly. And yeah. like, that must be quite worrying for parents of young people to know, like, well, how can I help? What if I make the wrong decision? Or what if I support you in the wrong way? And Yeah. But, I mean, it sounds like for you it was just such a no-brainer for your parents, your your aunt as well. It sounds like yeah. it was just definitely the right thing. When you say you you were kind of teaching them and sort of teaching yourself as well, like how did you teach yourself about what you were experiencing? Well, I grew up in a quite a religious household. My mother, during towards my late adolescence, got involved with the Mormon church. So I sort of grew up in that for a couple of years. And being queer, being trans was not only not really talked about, it was actively talked against. It was a sin to be these things or to do these things. And did you know um, at that point? Not at all. I think those years were a little bit stunting for me as a person just because religion was the only thing available for those couple years of my life. I, I mean, I sought out friendships through video games and sort of online areas. But at that point, I was still quite young. I didn't understand sort of what I was feeling. And then I broke How away from that. How old were you? Sorry, that From about 9 to 12. I had just turned 12 when I moved back to Los Angeles. Uh, I lived in a little town in sort of the border between Northern and Southern California called Middletown, just a quiet little religious area. Little <laughs> yeah, it was quite little. It was very small. <laughs> Definitely not Los Angeles. It was a couple hours outside of Santa Rosa was the next like big, big city. And um, is that your parents had broken up? So you went just with your mom? Just with my dad. My dad, they, that was kind of the divorce. My mom stayed there and I went with my dad back to Los Angeles to live with my aunt. I see. So when you were living in Little Town, yeah. that was with your mom and your dad. Yeah. So your dad was also in the Mormon community. Um, it was a little bit weird because it was a smaller Mormon situation. And my dad is Jewish. My whole dad's side of the family is Jewish. And I was raised partially Jewish as well. Um, I had a very interesting religious upbringing. Part Jewish, part Mormon. Yeah, very, very unusual. Yeah. So my dad just kind of existed there. Like we took him to church, but he never got baptized and they didn't really make 
a fuss about it. So it was just sort of a, they just kind of let him be there. We were also the only new people in that town. Very rarely did someone move into that kind of town or into that situation. So we were already sort of an anomaly of Middletown and they just kind of let us be. But I got baptized. I got into the whole thing through my mom. But when we left and I went back to Los Angeles, I went back. I should say the, the school systems were slightly different. So when I went back to Los Angeles, I was a little bit behind in terms of education. So I went straight into middle school, whereas I had just come from elementary school and other people in LA had already done one year in middle school. So I felt quite stunted, I guess. I wasn't used to being in, in a bigger school with classes I had to change every period. Were you in a school that was Mormon? No. No. It wasn't a religious school, but most people there were Mormon. And you said it was Middletown. Middletown, Middletown. Yeah. Oh, sorry, yeah. I called it Little Town. It was a little town. It was a little town in Middletown. <laughs> yeah, okay. very little. And so it wasn't a Mormon school, but it was a Mormon community. Yeah. And so when you moved back with your dad, yeah. was there like, was that also to do with your identity? At that point, no. I was completely well into the Mormon church. I was still identifying as a girl, sort of. I was always, we'll go with tomboyish, as I was called a lot as a kid. I never wanted to wear the skirts and the dresses, and I always wanted to have a mohawk and short hair. But my family at the time was like, no. I was super disconnected with my years in Middletown. I felt completely othered. Um, I was very much the weird kid. I was into video games, and as a girl, that was unheard of. And... I didn't really get along with most of the people there. I had like two kind of close friends, but we were the other othered. We were kind of the group of the weird kids. Uh, but for the most part, I just kind of didn't exist for those years. I dove into books. I read hundreds of books. I think I read every fantasy book in the library at my school. So when I got back to Los Angeles, it kind of was, oh, we have to sort of address who are we not kind of trying to escape. And You have to listen to your own thoughts. Was, and at that point, I had started puberty, which was a big sort of push in needing to actually listen to what my body was feeling and what I was needing to do for myself. And actually, funny enough, I was in uh, a drama course, as a lot of queer people are a part of, and my drama teacher was like, hey, you're not really doing cis things. Do you think you might be... Uh, at the time, she gave me, I think, a gender fluid, and I was like, oh, this exists. It was so funny because I was like the president of the GSA and I was an ally. But at that point, I was like, I'm not queer. I'm not trans. I just all of my friends are and I support this. And I'm, I see. Like, right. a really, like I was literally the president of, of the um, Gender Sexualities Alliance Club. No, but I'm an ally. But I mean, that. even if you were or you weren't, it's always great to be an ally. Oh, yes, of course. Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> but, but it was sort of that, that timeline of ally into walking through every letter of the of the acronym, which is what I did pretty much. So she said, do you think you might be gender fluid? And I was like, wow, I didn't know this existed. So I fell into full research mode. I was looking up being like a demi, demi boy, demi girl, trans. I didn't even know like any of this existed. What's a demi boy, demi girl? Oh, I have to remember. I think it was the definition of like a, a was branch of like non-binary where sometimes you felt like a boy. I don't fully remember. Don't quote me on this. But sometimes you feel like a boy and sometimes it's neutral and you kind of shift you between shift to, okay. like non-binary and like male, I think. But I fell into just like researching every possible variation because at that point I didn't think I could be trans. I was denying that it felt very final. For me at that age, I was 12 basically at this point. And I, I was like, I can't be trans. Like that's too, there's too much involved with that. I can't deal with that right now. And so I tried identifying as gender fluid and then I was like today I'm having a boy day 
and then I had a boy day, and then I had a boy day, and it wasn't very fluid. <laughs> and you never went back. <laughs> and then I was like, okay, I think this this is the thing. I have to like address this. But I didn't have, I didn't really know how to address that. I didn't know what I wanted. I didn't even at that point know that I wanted to really identify as male. I just was sort of like, I feel horrible. I think this is what I want. I don't know what to do. So I sort of wrote a letter to my aunt. So I was like, do I say I'm your nephew? Or like, I was still figuring out my name. And she kind of found me in a very just sort of confused space. Spot, but she kind of scooped me up and was like, hey, I love you. We'll figure this out. Come to terms with what you need to come to terms with, and I'll help you. And so at that time, I, I got enrolled into sort of a, a youth group with a lot of trans men, teenagers, young. Did you look for that? She gave group. me that. No, she found that for me, which was really important to realize I wasn't the only one mm. um, and meet trans people kind of between children all the way through teens and adults and kind of their stories and what they were doing and who got top surgery and who got hormones. And I didn't even know that was an option. And then I sort of kind of developed this little circle of, of trans men at that age, which was really important for me. Um, we all started testosterone sort of within the same year of each other and uh, looked into getting top surgery. And uh, later, a few of those friends ended up getting bottom surgery. So even though I'm not as close with these guys, it's still nice to look back and see how far we've come together, even though we're not buddies as we used to be. Yeah. No particular reason, just just getting older and, and moving on. And I happen to move halfway across the world. So yeah, <laughs> yeah geography definitely plays a role in some of that. Well, you look, I mean, I know that we shouldn't even be talking in binaries, but as in you, let's say you pass. I mean, yes. that's a lot of, for many trans people, that's not their aim to yeah. pass. And passing is like, um, it relates to race as well as gender in terms of do you fit into normative society? And a lot of people are very anti-passing because we yeah. feel like, you know, we should be disrupting that norm anyway. But that kind of quote unquote passing concept is well debated. Yeah, for but, sure. And some people pass very easily. And I would say that you've been on testosterone since you were, did you say 16? 14. 14. Both were 14. You have a big beard. Yeah. And you've got a slightly deeper voice. Yeah. You, or you dress, let's say, very masculine, masculine as well. Yes, yeah. You're kind of slightly gothy. You wear a lot of black spike, you know, spikes. Yeah, all the time, yeah. Are they, these would are you spikes, call them spikes? Yeah. yeah. And like skulls and jewelry and like you like you said, you had a mohawk. So that passing element is a privilege. Yes. Because it sure. means you can move through society in a way that you're not targeted as much. Passing, this is a very big can of worms. Passing as a concept is, is frustrating because like you said, it's hard to talk in non-binary terms while living in a binary world because like, yes, passing as a concept shouldn't have to be something that trans people should have to worry about. You should yeah. be able to be like, like, hey, my name is, these are my pronouns, and that should be bare minimum, but... We live in a world that requires a certain level of passing to feel safe, I guess, depending on the community you're in. And my goal was never passing. That wasn't ever. It was just, um, I guess, my goal was comfort mm -hmm. in my body, I guess, as most trans people would say that that's their goal. I went into it very much identifying strongly as a trans man. Uh, as I've gotten older, I've shifted in kind of a more non-binary identity, but even I'm still sort of exploring that and I'm not quite sure what that entails. I'm very much a cis-passing white man when I want to be. Well, I am, I should say. Uh, I can be even straight passing when I want to be is, I guess, more what I can... And by straight passing, you mean a straight, a heterosexual yeah, cis man? Yeah, like I, I can yeah. pass, because like, I, I have... I. For, it's very important for me to be perceived as queer. I very much like being perceived as queer, but when it's not safe to do so, mm. I can... That's... Present in a way that uh, I can keep myself safe, which is a which is a privilege upon. Yeah, upon, like... and that's what people talk about in the queer community, isn't it? That yeah, you know, passing is not everyone can pass or has that option. Yeah. And actually, as much as that's a good thing to be disruptive physically and visually and deliberately, sometimes it's really helpful to feel safe and 
just being blend in when I was pre pre passing at this point in my teens, I've been targeted at some points for altercations because of the way I looked. And I was also dressing against the norm at that point. And I think an interesting concept, at least for me personally, I've always sort of dressed this way. I've always been I've worn a lot of black. I've, I mean, partially the influence of both my sister and my aunt also dress in all black. Um, you had the, the opportunity to meet them, I believe. Right. I met your aunt yeah. Oh yeah, and, and your sister and said, yeah. Yeah, so at the graduation show. Very much my influence. But I wouldn't say that they're, they're not as punky as you. No, I definitely took it to quite the extreme, partially. In a great way, you're punky, but I'd say that they're more kind of, from what I saw, like a slightly edgy but chic. Yeah, my, my aunt in particular, actually. Um, no, I and I love sort of going to that edge and extreme of fashion. It's partially why I've decided to go this route with my degree and my it's career. your look as well, which I think is very cool. But I think regardless of gender, I would have looked like this. I think if I was cis, I would have been very similar. And I mean, a lot of a lot of this dressing came from the anger. I was very angry in my teens of not being what I wanted. And to dress angry deflects people. So I deflected and got attention, which was sort of what I was needing as a teenager. Don't look at me because I'm trans. Look at me because I'm spiky and out there and, and very prominent. And I think now I'm struggling a lot with I don't want to blend in as much as I thought I wanted. Wanted to. I like the comfort of being able to, but I miss being so just like my own person being like a very individual person. But I go back and forth on that mm. because there's elements of safety in that, too, that I don't love to deal with if I don't have to. But I mean, all of that is, is a privilege. There's so much complexity that comes with it. And it's so tied to fashion, which is one of the reasons I'm fascinated with the body and all sorts of kind of political elements that come with fashion and society. But your collection and your designs in general, they tell this story about who you are. And I think that your final degree collection really showed that. Earlier, you were talking about the kind of insects and the metamorphosizing. And often many of them completely transform into a completely different yeah. insect with a different body. Going from caterpillar to cocoon to butterfly, you know, we can model our ideas ideas of identity on that notion of metamorphosizing. So I think choosing insects was really revealing in terms yeah. of how you feel about your body and how you feel about your experience. I was just going through my scroll on the internet and someone had said that people who often feel othered or outside the general general norm gravitate towards loving things that are usually unloved, like insects, like rats, like bats. and Snakes. Snakes. Basically, all of these creatures that are usually deemed bad or unlovable end up being very much loved by the people who feel that way. And I didn't even really realize that, but I have grown up loving insects. And I loved kind of that, that element of these othered creatures just simply because people, out for no even particular reason, don't like them. We I connected like them. with them. Definitely. And I, it wasn't even, that one isn't even conscious. That was just, I've grown up loving insects. It's a part of me, as well as the whole gender identity with it. And combining that wasn't even intentional, but I'm very, very pleased that that was there as well. Mm, it's amazing. If you're enjoying this episode, please subscribe or press the follow button to get the new episodes. And take a second to like, rate and review the podcast because it helps other people find it. You could also share this episode with someone who you think would enjoy it. So can you tell us a bit more about how you got into fashion design? Fashion was not the original plan, but here we are. I, like I said earlier, started in the theater. I loved it, and I started as an actor, and then I realized I'm really bad at singing, and I'm really bad at dancing, and I'm not particularly good at acting, <laughs> which is fine. They're not for everyone, but I did enjoy it. It was fun. Sometimes it's like 
80, 80% about enthusiasm. It was like 99% enthusiasm. I was just really excited to be in a community of people and have friends, and it was artistic and very queer, and it was fun. There is um, also something, sorry to interrupt, but oh, there no is problem. also something within theatre where, like, weirdness is really encouraged. Yeah. And, you know, there's often these theatre schools and, and drama training places where you almost, you have to learn how to humiliate yourself in front yeah. of each other and to be comfortable with being humiliated. I mean that in, like, maybe not as harsh as it sounds, yeah, yeah. but as in you have to be able to get up and be a complete freak in front of each other and to not feel self-conscious. You have to be able to laugh at yourself. Yeah, and I think that that is actually training that we could all do with. You know, I loved it. It was so much fun. That was exactly, it was pretty much that. Just letting go of myself as a person without having to worry about my gender or sexuality. And at that age, I wasn't super involved with that. It was just sort of an aspect that was definitely there that I wasn't as aware of. Uh, but I was like, okay, well, I'm really bad at the acting part. Where can I go with this but stay here? Uh, so I went into set design in the tech department at my school, and I loved it. We were painting, we were building, we were designing. And I loved it. I did props, I did sets, and it just gave me the creative satisfaction of like manifesting something physical. I was with the team. It was great. I loved kind of that teamwork element because I do my own painting and my own drawing, but so much solitude is with that. And I like that for sometimes, but I very much thrive with working with the team. And then I was like, okay, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. This is what I'm going to do. So I go to high school and I join the drama department and I end up getting into over, over about a year, uh, a pretty just argument with the drama teacher. He was, we didn't get along very well. And I was like, okay, I'm done with this. I don't want to work with him anymore. Where can I go? Okay, what other creative outlets can I do? And so my school at the time had a fashion department, and it was very much more like fashion show production. We did fashion runways, and there was like half the class with design looks, like styling or altering existing garments, and then the other half were the show producers. And we figured out how to get the models, and we did the music and all of the design and the poster. And I started kind of in the design course, and the teacher was like, hey, I love you. You actually care. She put me into the show producers side of things quite quickly, and I fell in love with it. I loved every second of it. We did fashion design research. We put on shows. And so my heart was set on fashion design after that. So I was obsessed. I guess the, the culture behind fashion design, I was learning how to, I was learning how to sew. I didn't know how to sew when I got to college. And then part of my degree plan at that school was getting an internship. And a lot of people got an internship at like David's Bridal. And there's nothing wrong with that, but I wanted something a little bit more than that. And so I was sort of looking into internships. And my head teacher at the time was like, hey, there's this internship being on offered for uh, Xandra Rhodes for two weeks in London. And I was like, oh my God, I want to do that. Just the opportunity for an internship with an actual designer like in their design house was unbelievable because there's not a lot of like ateliers or studios or non-super technical jobs in LA. My game plan at that time actually was going to CSM for post-grad. Um, I dreamed of CSM and kind still of, in the pipeline. Still in the pipeline. Maybe not immediately, but definitely in the pipeline. I just wanted, I did want to come to London. I think that was ultimately a goal. Is that because, why was that that you wanted to come to London? It just felt free from the outside. It, it was full of culture from a different perspective. Uh, I mean, now that I've been living here, I jokingly call it the best parts of L.A. and New York with history. It has the city elements. It has nightclub elements. It has fashion. It has design. It sort of has everything that I like. It's got a lot of subcultures that and countercultures, yeah. which I think is appealing to countercultural movements like the history here of punk and goth. And yeah, and I had never been long term outside of the U.S. or even 
even outside of Los Angeles. So I was really just sort of looking for something creatively stimulating. And CSM was a major dream at that point. Like I didn't even think it was necessarily possible. Like it was just an out there. If I can do it, I will do it. And then I applied for that internship. And the same company was offering a term at Regents University. But I was the only student to apply at my university. And only one student could apply per university out of the entire United States. So I was like, well, that's a shot in the dark. But I felt like I threw a ticket in a raffle. Like I was like, all right, I'll, yeah, I'll just here's a submission. Still one of the, the highest compliment, highest achievement I've done. Wow. Um, I had nothing. I had no idea who was applying, how many people. At that point, I didn't even have a portfolio. And looking back at the quality of that portfolio. Well, they obviously saw something. What do you think they saw? Yeah, I mean, I was confident in my aesthetic at that point, which is very different than it is now. Every year it sort of shifts and refines a little bit. But I was certain of who I wanted to be. I was certain of who inspired me. Definitely polished up the design process, uh, and I can kind of articulate my work a little bit better. But there was a sureness, and I think I was different. I'm not making, like, ball gowns or, like, pretty dresses. I'm, I'm definitely kind of... So you stood out. Yeah, I think I was I was different for the applications. And then I don't even know if this quantifies, but I talk about being trans, and a lot of people say to throw that in there because it gives you sort of like the diversity pick, which I don't love. Positive discrimination. Yeah. So, But I was like, if I win the thing because of that, I'm not going to be unhappy either. So, Well, I guess the whole point of that is to provide opportunity for people who have been discriminated against or excluded or found life really difficult. You know, often people who've grown up being queer or feeling like they don't fit in, or from like very poor backgrounds. Yeah. The start to life can be a bit slower because of those troubles. Yeah. And I think giving people an opportunity, like a leg up, when they've had, you know, lots of barriers, people call it positive discrimination, but I see it as a really positive thing that those yeah. people should be given a, an opportunity that they wouldn't previously be given. I completely agree. My only, like, I guess, hang up with it is I am a trans. We'll just go with designer for this example. Like, I am a trans designer, and I'm proud of that, but I don't want to be picked because I am trans. I want to be picked because of what I do is wanted for, for the role or the position or whatever. So I, I go back and forth with... Mm, I see like that. I, we've, we've had previous discussions where I wasn't sure if I should basically tell employers or put on my website and stuff that I was trans because I was kind of deciding on how public do I want that information to be. And then I ended up deciding to make it public anyway, because it's such a big part of my design. And it's such a big part of my life. It affects everything. You kind of can't ignore it. Yeah, I can't ignore it. And I would think I would be in more agony trying to hide it and trying to be stealth and not explain that area of my design. To be vocal is a really important thing. Yeah. About, you know, who you are and where you've come from. And visibility and representation is so important for other people who might be feeling similarly to you. But in the same breath, I understand that you want to be acknowledged as a designer for your talent and your hard work, first and foremost. Yeah. And you don't want to be recognized necessarily as it's a bit like when people say, oh, they're a female doctor or a female yeah. lawyer. Putting those identity markers in front of someone's job is yeah. really demoralizing. And actually, it's like this is a person who is good at their job. Yeah. And it doesn't matter, you know, what their what the color of their skin is or what their gender expression is or their sexual orientation. And that shouldn't come into it. But essentially, your work and your conscientiousness speaks for itself anyway like I don't think that's something you should worry about I think what you bring is unique because of partly your, your experience but also 
if you didn't work hard and have talent, you definitely just wouldn't have got here. <laughs> yeah, that too. One hundred percent. And I like to just I like to always tell people be like, being trans is is a part of me. It's not anywhere near the whole. It's just a it's small. It's not who piece. you are completely. Yeah. yeah. It affects every aspect of my life, but that doesn't mean I am only that. Yeah. Especially in my art. I mean, I talk about gender a lot. I use it a lot. The way I work with the body is is directly affiliated with that. But I have other references. I use history. I use other things. It's not the the sole purpose of of Purpose is the different is a wrong word. It's not my sole inspiration. Yeah, not my sole inspiration, not my sole design element, but it's also important and I can't ignore it and I can't I can't ignore it. <laughs> and I don't think you should feel like you have to. Yeah. Essentially. And I remember you, you saying to me, like, I don't know whether I should include it as a detail in my design work, as in, you know, yeah. whether you should put it in abstracts and bios and stuff. I encourage you to do it partly just because I think, like you said, you you just got to be you. But I can see where you're coming from and that you don't want it to be a focal point. The other scary sort of options, I don't want it to hinder either. I mean, I, I was doing a course on how to write a good CV and they say, don't put your face on it because don't give someone opportunity to discriminate against any part of you, even subconsciously. And I asked, what should I do about gender? Like, what should I put on? Because I know even some people have like a distaste by putting pronouns in a bio. It can hinder in it and it can help. So I wasn't quite sure whatever to do with it, but I think I've just decided to go with it. And if I don't get a job because someone doesn't want a trans person working there, I think it's probably best I'm not working there anyway. 100%. You wouldn't want to so. work there anyway. And your pronouns, I mean, I always called you he, him. Yeah. Because that's, I think, how you kind of were introduced to me. And also yeah. I made the assumption that you were cis as well at the beginning. Yeah. And later on, I realized that maybe you preferred they, them. I don't even know anymore. You don't know. Uh, so this is kind of the part of like where I'm kind of going through a new gender sort of identity development. Um, I've always identified as he, him through my my transition. Recently, I've changed the, the bio on my Instagram to have like he, they pronouns. I didn't inform anyone. I kind of just did that. And a few people have noticed and been like, do you want? And I was like, I don't know. I'm kind of at a point where I don't really care. Like you can even use she, her pronouns. I'm content with who I am as a person. My issue comes for when people try to, I guess, use it in a like a, in a derogatory sense, like they're trying to upset me, then I get a little peeved. Um, or people do who people do that. My mom still misgenders me, which is a whole fun thing. But that must be really difficult. Yeah, I mean, at this point, it, it's so it's just been a process of the last ten years, basically. Um, do you think that's by mistake sometimes that it's no. out of habit? No, it's 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 intentional. I only know this for certain because my brother, uh, I look a lot like my brother, actually, and I didn't completely used to very much. The testosterone kind of gave me a lot of his features or enhanced the features mm. that he has. And she's accidentally called me his name before and then switched back to my dead name. And I'm like, oh, OK, I see how this Ouch. how this is. But we're no contact now. And that's how I like it. But yeah. and you mentioned that you, you called it dead name, which is just for the sake of those who might not know at home. Can you say, can you explain what a dead name is? You don't need to say yeah. what your dead name was. Uh, yeah, no, a dead name is just sort of one of a few terms that trans people like to use to describe what they were named at birth or what they went by as a kid that they no longer wish to be used. Not even necessarily by birth. Some people go through a few different names before they land on their mm. chosen name. Um, yeah. 
going back to the pronouns and feeling kind of comfortable to mix them up. Yeah. Some people, obviously, that's not what they want to do and everyone's different. But there is, there's a theorist called Jack slash Judith Halberstam. Yeah. Used to be Judith Halberstam, now goes more by Jack, but has written an article about pronouns and says that they are happy with she, her, he, him, they, them. Yeah. And uses them interchangeably and isn't doesn't get offended by people referring to them in different pronouns. Yeah. And they sort of explain that for them, that's the nature of their gender fluidity is that like it is for them very fluid. But they also acknowledge that for some people, it's like much more important to have a particular pronoun. Yeah. And it sounds like maybe you feel a bit more like that, that you're kind of you're okay with different pronouns being used as long as it's out of respect. Yeah. My concept of gender for my own identity is just sort of, I mean, it sounds quite funny, but at this point, I just wanted a beard. Like, I don't even see it necessarily as like a male trait. Sometimes that actually frustrates me when it seems so intentionally male. But my gender identity is so, I don't want to say it's without gender. I'm going through a thing. I don't even know where I identify on the gender spectrum at this point. I just sort of like, I'm doing what I'm doing. It is what it is. I, I grew up watching a lot of like Eddie Izzard, who now goes by Susie Eddie Izzard or either or. But same thing with her. She's like, you can use he, him pronouns. You can use she, her pronouns. You can use Susie. You can use Eddie. I don't care. And I'm sort of at that point where I'm like, yeah, do whatever. <laughs> as long yeah. as you're respectful of, of who I am. A Jack I'm pretty strong on, but that's about... Uh, you suit Jack as well. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. That's my that's my one, like, use that name and no variation because I, I shortened my dead name. So sometimes people will use a variation that I went by a lot as a nickname and I'm like, no, no, don't like that. Yeah. But it's it's completely accidental most of the time. So what are your plans for your future career moves, do you think? Because I feel like I see you becoming a designer. Yeah. I see you going quite far with it. I mean, your final collection was very well received. You received an award. You received lots of positive reviews in the press. And I wanted to know what you what you see for your future as a fashion designer. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, the next couple of years are super fluid. I ended up deciding that I want to stay in the UK at least for some time. So I'm in the process of getting my graduate visa. Uh, I don't think I'll open my own label for some time. I think I need to sort of figure out who I want to be first in terms of like a design sense and kind of also a personal sense. Um, So right now I'm kind of just on the hunt for different internships and kind of seeing what elements of the design industry I kind of want to focus on. And then from there, eventually open up my own label. But I also like to do postgrad at some point in the next we'll go with five years I knew what I what the graduate collection was meant for it was to kind of define myself as an artist and kind of start to develop certain techniques that might become consistent with my brand or consistent with myself or even just conceptually kind of figure out what I want I need a purpose for what I'm doing a master's for like what am I trying to get out of a master's what am I trying to get out of starting a label and I kind of want to just see how it's run first I don't know that much about running my own label having in employees and, and any of that, but I definitely would like to in the future. It's one of the bigger goals, maybe. Yeah, definitely in the next. We'll go with next 10 years. You said earlier that your dream was, you always said coming to London, there was a focus on CSM, as yeah. in Central St. Martin's, the college yeah. that's connected to University of the Arts. And that obviously has got a real reputation in terms of churning out the top fashion designers, Alexander McQueen, John Galliano, Stella McCartney. Yeah. And it's really known for that, as well as fine art students. What's the pull to that? Is it that you want you want the experience of being there or is it that you also want the kind of kudos of having it under your belt? I think for me personally, I look up to, like you said, a ton of the designers that have come 
out of CSM, both super famous and sort of recent day. Uh, I'm working for a CSM graduate. Which is? I'm currently working for Johannes Vanka, uh, and he's a great designer and a CSM graduate. But yeah, I think for me personally, it would just uh, a proof to myself that I actually am at this level. Uh, I struggle a lot with my own, I guess, self-confidence with my work and kind of, is it actually good enough or do other people actually like this or is it just like a weird niche that's not going to go anywhere? I mean, Regents was a big part of that, at least for me currently, was being able to finish a degree and being offered a place at this university was very helpful for that. I don't think I, I need to get a postgraduate if I, if I, it ends up not being something in my timeline in the future. But if you didn't need it and you were going to be successful without it. Then I don't. Yeah. Why, why do it? I think just like as, as a young designer, it would be very ego boosting to, to say that I got into CSM. Like that's very hard to do. It's a bit like the Oxbridge of arts or like the Yale, Harvard yeah, of arts. Just that I can would be would be very satisfying. Would you be proving it to yourself or to other people? I think that one would be for myself. There's a... I, th- I mean, I know a lot of designers and a lot of artists kind of go through that sort of constant battle with themselves and their own confidence with their work. I definitely hyper-perfectionist to the point of, of hindrance a lot of the time, but we'll see. It's difficult, isn't it? Because you do need, everyone needs to be humble. Yeah. But at the same time, that critical voice in our head, which can firstly keep us humble. And secondly, it's actually a really useful voice for kind of, it's there to guide us, isn't it? That critical voice, keep us on track and make sure we haven't just blindly gone into something with arrogance. But at the same time, that critical voice can get too loud and get too dominant. And it's about managing it, isn't it? To be like, well, hang on, I don't need to be that mean to myself. I also need to acknowledge that I'm good at this and I'm good at that. Yeah. And it's that balance of maintaining your sense of self and being humble whilst also being confident and being like, no, I can fucking do this. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually... I'm I can, good at this. I can sew. Um, yeah, yeah so like, and also acknowledging your talent. Yeah. I think it's important to acknowledge your talent and be really proud of where you've got to. Not everyone, even if they worked as hard as you, would be able to produce what you produced. And I mean, you did work very hard and you do work very hard. Yeah. You're in the studio late at night, every night on the build up to that collection. And, you know, I think often talent is misconceived to be seen as people who don't have to work that hard and they just churn out this amazing stuff. When I think talent comes hand in hand with hard work. Talent is largely practice. You have to dedicate time to make it into something. Completely. It takes that hard work, but it also is a vision. I think sometimes people have that little sparkle. You can't teach the vision, but you have to to practice the craft, I think is kind of how it is. You put it very succinctly. Say it again. (laughs) You can't teach the vision, but you have to practice the craft. You can see it in your head, but if you can't produce it, then it's nothing. It's not talent. I think that's why I I went originally from full throttle into CSM. I want to get my postgrad into kind of more of a, maybe in a minute, was kind of the the amount of work that goes into a graduate collection and into university at all kind of left me now a little bit Exhausted. Exhausted, yeah. There's a bit of burnout and kind of a, oh, I need I need a second to figure out who I am again. Because you can't create if you don't feel good. Like, if you're not at the best point of yourself, it's very hard to work hard. I especially felt that towards the end of the collection where it was just day after day after day of sewing. No breaks. No breaks. Quality declines. You can't work like that. Mm. But yeah, you, there's a balance of, of needing to practice very, very much and work very, very hard, but not to the point of harming or hindering the work itself too. 
And I think as well that the creative industry, for better or worse, does have these kind of bursts, doesn't it, with these projects, the people in the creative industries. We were talking about your internship before we started recording and that it's like all stations go, you know, everything's working late because working to a deadline or a show, a collection, and then the collection happens, the models go out on the catwalk and then it's all done. Yeah. And then, I mean, things obviously pick up again after that, but it's working to these projects and these tight deadlines. As much as it's not very healthy, there's a kind of adrenaline to that and a sort of rush and an excitement. But doing that over and over again is draining and you do need to have a social life and you do need to go and have fun and have a day off and catch up on sleep, all of those things, because otherwise you'll lose your ability to create and tap into that stuff. Yeah. I mean, I I spend a lot of time with with fashion or fashion adjacent people and it's always like, oh my God, I work so hard. I don't sleep enough. I don't eat enough. I see nobody. I hate what I'm doing. But then at the same time, they turn and be like, I would do nothing else. I'm having the time of my life. (laughs) So it's kind of this like push pull of like, sometimes you're absolutely really angry about what you're doing, but then you get to that point of adrenaline and it's exciting and it's fun and you don't want to do anything else. It's a high. Yeah. It's an absolute high, isn't it? There's highs and lows. And when they're low, it can get low. Um, Yeah. Those highs are also really fun too. Going to shows and or just finishing a garment even, like there's different highs. It's constant up and down, but uh, everyone I talk to, it, it shifts from this is really, really hard, but I would do nothing else. There's nothing else in the world I'd rather be doing. And you feel like that, I assume. Yeah, for the most part. As long as I'm creating, as long as I'm making things, I'm happy. That can be in, in any form, but I prefer a team and fashion is a team. You cannot do it alone. You cannot do any aspect of, of running a brand alone. What would you say drives your creativity? Like when you're in the studio late at night, sewing on the sewing machines, getting stuff wrong, having to unpick it, sew it again. You know, a lot of your stuff was, like I said, geometric shapes, which were so precise. There was a mathematical equation going on in those designs, you know, like because you wanted this total symmetry of these sort of insect-like bodies. And the detail and effort that goes into that, other than those highs, what's driving you? Because there's something more than that. Yeah, part of that is definitely that sort of perfectionism I mentioned where it was if it's not literally the best that I could do then I can't leave it alone like it physically will itch at me and it will bother me and sometimes you have to submit that because that's how fashion is and I think that's part of why I went for fashion is sometimes that mandatory deadline is very helpful for that kind of inner monologue I can't sit and fiddle with details There's no time. forever you just have to be done for me I just I need to finish a project I like to start it I like to twall I like to see it develop um, can you explain to us what a twall is Toile is sort of like a in-between kind of, I guess, a sketch of what you're trying to make. And you kind of reproduce toile after toile until you kind of get this perfectly sewn preview. Right. But a toile is 3D, isn't yeah. it? In the studio, you have mini mannequins, which is what you make your toiles on. And they are kind of like a fifth or something. Quarter, yeah. They're a quarter. Yeah. So they're a quarter of what an, a full-size mannequin is. And then you create on that, you do miniature designs. In the beginning. In the beginning. <laughs> yeah. And then you start doing, because you don't want to waste your fabric, obviously. And yeah. then you start upsizing. The, the big twelves, yeah. And then you move everything up. In your head, are you like, I want to have a brand? I think if the opportunity arises and I can support a brand, that would be very exciting. I think I'd have a lot of fun kind of being in control of that whole creative process. But there's a lot of hats involved that I don't like wearing in kind of being the boss of the brand. There's a lot of managing and finance work. and You lose um, some of the creativity. Yeah, and I, I can do it, but I, I don't find pleasure in doing it. And I think that's a little bit off-putting for me. I just like creating. It's very much what drives me as a person. If I don't create for a bit of time, it's very depressing is a strong word. I don't do well if I'm not creating stuff. 
I've applied to two internships that I'm quite excited for, but I don't have any idea of how that'll go. But I got to Regents, so I'm exactly. used to just throwing throwing my uh, portfolio in a pot and hoping. So <laughs> And doing the hard work behind it. Yes. I think that that's also crucial because I think people love a hard worker. You start to forget it, though. You're just like, yeah, that that's what you have to do. And then... Yeah, it doesn't come with everyone, though. I promise you that. I can, t- I can see a lot of people, that, a lot of students that I've worked with who don't want to put the effort in. Yeah. And it's like, essentially, if, if you want to do well and you want to get the grades and you want to go far, you, you just have to put the work in. And a lot of people don't actually comprehend what that means, the amount of time you have to sit down and focus and I had no idea turn your I phone off and yeah. you know say no to social events and dedicate a big chunk of your life to it. Loads of people are firstly not willing to do that and secondly don't realize that that's what it takes. Yeah, I major pet peeve is when people are like, "Oh, fashion design, so easy, so fun," and I'm like, "Oh no, so <laughs> so fun, <laughs> not easy, not easy, no. no." And it requires a lot of energy in terms of like physical energy, yeah. Because you guys are always like working, you're working hard, you're working physically. You've got these big tables, you're moving big, big pieces of fabric around the table, you're dressing and undressing mannequins, you're moving around machines, you're you're walking around the studio, getting stuff all the time. So it's a real physicality that comes with that work, which makes you. T- tired as well. The hundreds of hours we've spent just traveling just to look at a pile of fabric to be like, do we like this color with this color? Oh, no, we have to go back and get this in a different color. And you just so much time weekly we were going, if not more. See, if you had a team, that would be the good thing. You You send them to get the swatches. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you'll get a fabric and you will absolutely be certain that that's how it's going to behave. And then you start to twall on it and it doesn't behave that way. And then you're back to square one where you either have to alter the design or sometimes you can kind of make it work with... You have to be flexible, Other I things. imagine. Yeah, everything yeah. is. So there's sort of like this idealistic image of what you want in your head and then what you can actually Achieve. create in a garment. I mean, also some of it comes with, I've only been sewing for four years. Some of it is my construction. And also but, I can imagine some of it is like financial. Yeah, You know, it, just say you were Alexander McQueen and you've got this team full of people who can make these huge, great big silhouettes. And, yeah. you know, he'd get these milliners or Philip Tracy to make the hats. And there's a whole team of people that he could afford, that big designers can afford to integrate. And not even just the team, but just the sheer fabric. The fabric like, and the, the size of things. Working with wool that's... 10 pounds a meter versus working with wool that's 50 pounds a meter is a very big difference in what it's going to look like. Right. And it's so beautiful. <laughs> but So you I, have you to kind of afford, adapt yeah. your design and your thinking as you get to know the fabrics and how they work. That and, and even certain techniques, like you just can't do as a person or even a small team of people. The designer like Wow Pei comes to mind. She has, I think, 250 people employed. Who's that, sorry? Uh, she's a couture designer who does these really extravagant dresses. What's her name again? Guao Pei. Guao Pei. And I think she has, I think it's like 250 people employed just for embroidery. Wow. Like there's certain types of things you can't do without a team of people. To get a dress quoted just to start is a baseline of a million dollars, I think. Oh, my dollars God. Pounds. Yeah, so you can have these images in your mind, but you can't necessarily create them with the funds of the people that you have. Yeah, The resources, yeah. Like a lot of my favorite work that I used to do before I got to university was like hand sewing. Like I love to hand sew patches and hand paint elements, but I can't sell something that takes that much time for what it costs because it won't buy for the market that it's aimed at. And I can't reproduce it 100 times for a price point that actually would sell. So there's that's constantly that balance, too, of mm-hmm. I have to make money with this piece. It's not 
just like a hobby for me anymore. And that's the part that I don't always love um, yeah. with fashion. And then running a business, I think, is a whole different kettle of fish. Like yeah. you say, you've got to be willing to lose certain elements of the creative process that you might not want to lose. Yeah. And you have to get involved in stuff you don't really want to get involved in and feel bored by. Yeah. I mean, it's. I'm really excited to see where you take your career. Thank you. Where I'm you excited take, to see where, you where, I decide, <laughs> where I decide to go. Well, you know, you can always count on me for a glowing reference. Thank you. I and need it. I just, yeah, I'm really excited to see your career develop because I think you're, like the press person said, you're one to watch. Thank you. So we'll be watching you. I know that you've already got people who want to wear your designs. So that is the proof in the pudding that you are creating things that people want to wear already. And it's not just... The these aren't everyday clothes, you know, they're kind of conceptual. They are for people who want to stand out and they are kind of countercultural. There's a real uniqueness. My I little think, niche, my my little section. Well, exactly yeah. your niche. I think that's that's the thing as well that will get you far. Yeah. But yeah, it's so exciting. And thank you so much for coming to talk to me on Bodies in the Post. Thank you so much for having me. This has been very, very fun. Oh, I'm so glad you've enjoyed it. It's been really great to chat. Thank yeah, you. I went by so fast. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Bodies in the Post with Jack Sisvane. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow the show for more interviews with artists, scientists and people pushing bodily boundaries. 